Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. I'm here with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. And today we're talking about the perennially important topic, hermeneutics. Dr. Kostenberger, why don't we start at the beginning and define what we mean by hermeneutics? Yes, uh, great to be with you today, Jamie, and uh, wonderful to talk about one of uh, our favorite subjects, which is so vital in our Christian lives and uh, study of Scripture, the area of hermeneutics. Uh, I've had a long-standing interest uh, in this topic, uh, certainly reaching as far back as my seminary days, and I know you do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, to, to keep things uh, simple, of course, hermeneutic it, it's itself uh, can be very intimidating uh, jargon. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, we're talking here about interpreting Scripture and to do justice to uh, the nature of Scripture and the nature of interpretation. Uh, my proposal is that we uh, best look at the historical, literary, and theological uh, dimensions of Scripture, something that I call the hermeneutical triad. Uh, simply put, this Christians, we believe that God revealed himself in Scripture and that he did so in, in the context of human history by way of, of texts, uh, various genres, uh, texts that we call the canon of Scripture. And so this means that uh, in order for us to interpret Scripture accurately and in keeping with God's intentions as well as uh, the respective human author's intentions, we need to discern what the Spirit is saying to us in Scripture uh, through a given text in its original historical setting. I think that's a helpful initial definition and description of hermeneutics. Um, as a follow-up, uh, on the hermeneutical triad, let's take a moment first to explore why accurate biblical interpretation is so vital and why inaccurate interpretation is so detrimental. Can you explain? I love the fact that, uh, Jimmy, that we're starting with the why before we get to the how-to because I think motivation is very important. And uh, in many ways, you know, I love Scripture. I love God's Word. And so even as a teacher of hermeneutics, you know, I want to inspire my students to, to, to develop a deep love for God and for His, His Word rather than simply, you know, going through the motions and, and following uh, whatever, you know, seven or ten step process, uh, you know, kind of rigidly. Uh, in, so in, in my hermeneutics classes, I typically start motivating my students by, by turning to, to Scripture, Second uh, Timothy 2.15. Uh, which says, uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And then I take a few minutes to unpack that verse, you know, word by word and, and phrase by phrase, because it's so rich and so motivational. First, we must do our best which in the original carries uh, a connotation of great urgency. I think do your best is, is almost a little bit weak. Uh, the word is used elsewhere uh, with a literal meaning. Uh, later in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
of to hurry or to make haste. So you can see that, you know, God is, uh, wants to impress on Timothy the, the importance of, of making the study of Scripture uh, a matter of great urgency and of, of first priority. And I don't think any of the English translations really captures the, the sense of urgency sufficiently. Um, you know, it's the idea of being committed to it, uh, being intense about it, uh, make it a matter of, of first and urgent priority. So that's a great start to that verse. And then second, uh, he tells Timothy to present yourself to God as one approved. Of course, that's a sacrificial language, right? To present yourself uh, to God approved. So studying God's Word is a, is a sacred uh, task. It's a holy exercise. It's part of our devotion to God, our, our, our close relationship uh, with God. It's, it's not meant to be dry, but it's, it's, it's really meant to be an, an outgrowth, uh, an outflow of our love for God. And the idea of, of being approved by God, as well as the, the reference to not needing to be ashamed— what does that make you think of? It makes me think of, of the final judgment, right? Because we're going to stand before God, and we want to hear that, well done, good and faithful servant, as Jesus said. And we don't want to be ashamed, but we want to be able to, uh, to account for the way we interpreted Scripture. And, and so it's a bit of a of a sober reminder, I think, to Timothy and to all of us that we're accountable mm -hmm. for the way in which we interpret Scripture. And one day, we'll be asked to give an account not just for other ways in which we lived our lives, but also specifically for the way in which we interpreted God's Word. Mm -hmm. And then we don't want to be ashamed for the way we did. And then thirdly, Still in that passage, uh, we are to be workers who correctly handle the word of truth. And of course, that has hermeneutics written all over it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the notion that you're a worker, meaning, uh, you know, biblical inter interpretation is actually work. You know, I, I, uh, every so often I, I talk to somebody and then it's almost a sense that you shouldn't have to work when you interpret Scripture, it just kind of come to you just effortlessly. Uh, but any of us who've really tried to, to wrestle with what a text means realize that, you know, it, it, it takes some research, it takes, it, it takes some, some digging sometimes. Uh, so the one who wants to master the handling of God's Word must be like an apprentice of a, of a master craftsman. And over time and through practice, and seeing good role models, like mm -hmm. our pastor or our mentor, our seminary uh, professor, the apprentice will learn to use the various tools of interpreting Scripture, like to interpret different genres of Scripture, uh, with increasing skill. And so, uh, as interpreters, we need to know and to learn what... Uh, the interpretive tools are and how to use them. Uh, I think this is what Paul means uh, when he talks about correctly handling the word of truth, which in the original means literally to, to cut straight, orthotomeo. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, we get the word orthodoxy from that 
um, to cut straight God's word. So, you know, we don't want to twist God's word like the false teachers did or, or kind of cut a crooked line. Uh, we need to develop skills in rightly dividing God's word. Well, that was uh, definitely inspiring, and I think a, a great place to start as we talk about hermeneutics. I think that's uh, sometimes motivation is is ignored or sometimes neglected as we think about um, right interpretation. So, as we get now um, to the flip side of that. Mm-hmm. What about the cost of incorrect biblical interpretation? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I tend to forget this, but before I became a Christian, I right kind of on the verge of, of God kind of awakening my, my longing for him, my just, you know, hunger for the truth, I, I, I briefly was exposed to a cult. And, you know, it, it kind of reminds me that we often pay a terrible price when we interpret God's word incorrectly. Uh, or maybe don't see the importance of it, uh, don't take the time, uh, try to cut corners. For example, in the passage I just mentioned, uh, Paul told Timothy he didn't want him to shrink back in shame at God's judgment, so he, he wanted him to develop the necessary skills to interpret God's Word correctly. Uh, and you know, Scripture is full of examples of those who failed in this area and who were severely chastised because uh, their failure didn't only bring ruin on them, but also on those they taught. So really, uh, you know, we're all potential teachers of God's words, not just students. And so we really have kind of a double responsibility here. James reminds us, of course, that teachers will be judged more strictly uh, just because of the, uh, you know, the... Um, the magnitude of of teaching other people God's word. Now, what's really intriguing is that, of course, we all know that we ought to study Scripture in context. So I started out with 2 Timothy 2.15. So I invite those of us who are listening, well, why don't you look at the verses before uh, and clearly and, and after uh, the immediate context Paul refers, would he believe it, to two men by the name of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Mm-hmm. And we know that those false teachers uh, asserted that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, of course, that's not true. The resurrection, in terms of the final uh, resurrection, the way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, is still future. Uh, it's actually interesting in terms of cross-referencing that Paul already mentioned this Hymenaeus in his first letter to Timothy, where he said that he'd handed him over to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. But sadly, Hymenaeus continued and persisted in twisting Scripture. So, so Paul gave him every opportunity. He warned him, and for whatever reason, he did not relent. And you know, many cults today, as you know, similarly distort the truth and as a result, uh, mislead many. You know, Jesus said, uh, you know, those who follow him, who, who remain in his word, will know the truth and the truth will set them free. And I often tell my students, but the opposite follows as well, mm-hmm. that error will enslave you and will will put you and keep you in bondage. So. 
you know, just like I'm trying to inspire uh, my students to love God's Word and to interpret it correctly, I think it's also, it can be motivational if we warn people that there is a cost for misinterpreting Scripture or, you know, on not devoting ourselves sufficiently to that. It's, it's you know, hermeneutics is not optional. It's, it's essential. Mm-hmm. And often, it's a matter of nuance, of balance, of certain amount of skill and sophistication of perspective. Uh, so, you know, in other areas, we know that becoming a doctor takes years of preparation and study. And somehow, you know, we think we can just, you know, interpret Scripture without any any training or preparation. Of course, you'll expect me to say that since I, uh, I teach at a seminary. But what, what I'm urging us to do is let's not be amateurs when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Uh, let's study to become experts. Uh, and as we learn in, in 2 Timothy, we'll be richly rewarded by God one day. And in this life, uh, be a blessing to many. I think that's very helpful. And now just returning back to the hermeneutical triad, uh, as you introduced before, how do we interpret the various genres of Scripture and and do so in a canonical context, as you outline in your hermeneutics book? Yeah, so let me say a word about each of these three elements, uh, history, literature, and theology. Uh, First thing I should probably say is that, of course, in one sense, we begin and end with God. So God is our starting point in that we believe God inspired Scripture, and Scripture is ultimately all about Him, how He created the universe, how He took the initiative to redeem us in Christ, uh, the plan of salvation, how He gave us His Spirit to live our lives in a manner worthy of our calling. But, uh, you know, I even briefly considered in my um, you know, forthcoming uh, revised edition of, of, of my hermeneutics text to, to put the triad kind of on its head and to have theology or God, you know, as kind of the tipping point at the base and then to have history and literature kind of uh, on top. But uh, as I thought about it some more, without taking away from the fact that, of course, God is uh, the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, even when it comes to Scripture, I think the way we access Scripture is through the text and through the historical setting. And those become vehicles through which God chose to reveal himself. And so I think in terms of the actual process that you follow as an interpreter, to me it's still most intuitive to start with history and literature and to move to theology um, after that, but let nobody say that, you know, the triad in any way has some sort of a built-in, uh, you know, bias where you, you put God is in third place. This is just more a matter of how the, the process, I think, uh, is probably mo- most adequate, uh, you know, given the task that's in front of us. Uh, now, um, from the standpoint of then studying a given text in Scripture, I recommend we start with studying the historical setting uh, in conjunction with the literary structure and flow of that book. Most 
Old and New Testament introductions will be helpful here. Same with good study Bibles. And of course, many clues are embedded in the biblical text themselves. Often you'll find clues uh, regarding the setting at the beginning of a given book, or in the case of a narrative, at the beginning of a given literary unit. Um, for example, the, uh, the account of Jesus' healing of a paralytic in Mark 2, it's well known, uh, begins uh, as follows. Uh, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he, uh, speaking of Jesus, was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So this introduction helps you know where the event takes place. It's in Capernaum, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, up in the, in the north. And it helps you picture the scene. Jesus is preaching the word to a crowd, uh, you know, inside a house, and it was standing room only. That then sets the stage for the healing of the paralytic, uh, whose friends creatively take off the roof and, and lower the invalid's bed down right in front of Jesus. Easy to picture that, but... When you think about it, it also requires you to do some research on the way in which houses were built in, in first century Palestine. You know, how come the man's friends could just take off the roof so easily and, you know, makes you wonder would the owner of a house not have been just a little bit upset, you know, somebody wrecked his roof. Um, so I think you get the idea. So we start with asking questions about the historical setting, as you discussed. Um, how would this, uh, how does this segue then into a study of the liter literary dimension of Scripture? Yeah, so then when you come to the, the second element of the triad literature, uh, we look at how a given story is told. So, you know, if you continue with our present uh, example, uh, Mark chapter 2, mm -hmm. uh, as we've seen, he first sets the stage. Uh, then he records the healing, uh, as well as Jesus' pronouncement that the man's sins are forgiven. And he finally moves on to the, the objection by the Jewish leaders and the response of the crowd, their amazement. And so here we can see the plot line, also the characterization of the major figures in the story. Uh, and the unfolding drama and suspense, and then the, the resolution at the end. So all these are ways in which we can understand the story better and more accurately. Then finally, how do we move from there to theology? Yeah, so finally we, we ask, what can, can we learn about God? You know, our, our, uh, the theology, the, the theological message. Of that, of that passage. In, in the case of the healing of the paralytic, of course, the answer is, is fairly straightforward. We see that Jesus claims to be God by uh, claiming to be able to forgive the man's sins, which is a divine prerogative. And so we read in, in verse 7, the Pharisees were thinking, no one can forgive sins but God alone. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of storytelling, right, Mark uses the, uh, the Pharisees as characters uh, voicing 
in effect, the theology that he's, he's seeking to convey, Jesus is God. Again, totally consistent with the nature of Mark. It's a gospel. It's a story of Jesus. And so, as we see from beginning to end, right, in chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark, he says, the gospel, right, of Jesus, the Son of God. And then at the conclusion, the Roman centurion is uh, exclaiming at the cross, truly, this man is the Son of God. So we see that at the, toward the beginning in chapter 2 in the story of the healing of the, of the paralytic, um, Mark uses that story, one among many in the gospel, to reinforce his core message that Jesus is God. Um, and uh, we see Jesus asserting in verse 10 that he, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So there you see uh, something that, incidentally, John in his gospel teases out even more, uh, but we already see it implicitly in Mark, that the healing serves as a visual demonstration of Jesus' power to forgive sins. And so it's not even just the healing. It's what the healing tells you about who Jesus is, his messianic authority, his power, his deity. Um, and so in our short study of Mark chapter 2, we've seen how analyzing a passage of Scripture from the vantage point of history, literature, and theology uh, turned out to be, I think, a simple but very useful method for getting the most out of your study of Scripture. So, uh, you know, I wholeheartedly uh, commend this approach to you. Try it. I, I think you'll really like it and find it easy to use. Dr. Kosmaru, thank you so much for your time today and this practical demonstration of how the triad actually works in practice. In, uh, in a later podcast, we'll talk to you some more about the new edition of your hermeneutics text. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.